I hope you're doing well. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're still in the midst of our series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. If you haven't uh, been able to be here in a while, and just a reminder, the goal of this series is to walk through the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and to, as best as possible, chronologically put the life of Jesus Christ together, His ministry, His death, and His resurrection and to put it all together to get this beautiful image and the impact that it should have on our own life. And as a reminder, when you read through the Gospels, they weren't written with the idea of being put together chronologically. That's not the point of the Gospels. The Gospels were meant to capture the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to pass it on to further generations. So there are some stories, if you were to read through the Gospels, that fall in different places that, uh, than some of the other Gospels. And that helps us know that they didn't copy from one another, but also let's know the intention wasn't to be a historical book, but simply to continue to tell the story of Jesus. And so we are in still the beginning portions of Jesus's ministry, and though our passage this morning in the Gospel of Luke will be in chapter 5, beginning in verse 33 in a second, it doesn't link this to any particular location like we've seen in the last couple of weeks, but when we use the other Gospels, for example, this event happens in Gospel of Mark chapter 2, we know that Jesus is still in the northern region of Galilee, most likely still in the city of Capernaum. Now what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do with uh, what is going on with this event and the events that preceded it is they clump three things together uh, to let us know that there is some opposition that is beginning to arise concerning Jesus Christ and what He is doing. We saw the first question come to Jesus when He healed the paralytic who was dropped through the roof, and Jesus forgave him his sins, to which the Pharisees and scribes said, well, who can forgive sins but God? We saw it last week when Jesus called Matthew the tax collector, and then Matthew had a huge banquet for him at his house, invited other tax collectors, and again the Pharisees and scribes said, well, why does your teacher associate with such people? This morning a question is going to arise once again in this third encounter, and it seems to deal with fastings, we'll see here in a second, but what we're going to discover, it actually has a much deeper root than just the cover or surface of fasting. The point is what these gospel writers were led to do through the Spirit is to show that this opposition is rising not just from Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders, but today's event actually comes from the disciples of John. And so other people are beginning to question and wonder, why is Jesus doing what He's doing or why is He not doing something that they think He should be doing? Our focus this morning is going to be traditions and the gospel. And the tradition at hand is fasting, but like I said, there's a much deeper level to this. Let's begin in verse 33, and then we will walk through this together. And they said to him, Disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then... They will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. 
And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Again, in the surface, it can seem like Jesus is talking about fasting, but he's actually not. He's getting to a much deeper level of what is going on in his society. And he'll teach more about fasting in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, which we're going to get to in a couple months. But if you want to go there and read it in the Sermon on the Mount, again, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches on fasting. But there are a few things we can learn concerning fasting, that what Jesus says here. The disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees fasted. Jesus' disciples were not fasting. Jesus' disciples would eventually fast, and that means there is a time for us as believers to have a spiritual fast. Discipline of fasting is brought up in question more like a child does with a parent. And if you have a child ever come and ask you, hey, mom or dad, why can't I do what Billy does? Or why can't I go where Billy goes? Or why can't I have what Billy has? And as parents, I used to hate it as a child when my parent would say this, but I'm there now. I say, well, I'm not Billy's parent. I'm not responsible for Billy. I'm responsible for you. And so I say so. And anybody else with me on that? Well, the question is brought up in that sort of manner, like a child to Jesus. Well, why do we go to fast, but you all don't fast? And there's a deeper issue at hand. Jesus uses two parables in order to bring out the real issue that is being brought about the fasting. But since we don't live in first century Judea, we need to become accustomed to Jewish tradition of fasting so we can understand the deeper level that Jesus takes this. Now in the Old Testament, there were, was a time to which the Jews were commanded to fast. And Jesus and all the Jews would have known this time. It was known as the Day of Atonement, where all the Jewish people would fast for 24 hours. It is the only time in Scripture to which the Jewish people were commanded to fast on a particular day. Now, there were other times which people did fast. Moses fasted when he went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. Uh, King Solomon fasted and actually called an entire nation to fast. King David fasted when he was told that the child with, between him and Bathsheba was going to die. He fasted until the child was born. So we know that fasting is important. The Jewish people understood fasting was important. But there was no command outside of the Day of Atonement about when they should fast or even how they should fast. We know that Jesus, he isn't opposed to fasting. Before he, when he went into the wilderness for 40 days, we're told that he fasted before he was tempted. He is going to teach on fasting. And when he does teach on fasting in Matthew 6, he says it in such a way as when you fast. Meaning as believers, fasting should, should be such a norm of our life just as when we pray and when we give, we're also expected to fast. The issue that prompts this is based upon man-made traditions which have become man-made laws in Jesus' day and for the Jewish people. Again, the Day of the Atonement is the only day that the Jewish people were commanded to fast. But then there were traditions and teachings that were held by the religious leaders that they passed on the people that if you're going to be truly righteous, if you're going to be truly spiritual, then you need to fast twice a week. And so we propose that you fast Monday and Thursday every single week. And the way they came up with Monday and Thursday is that they believe Moses went up the mountain on Monday, was there for 40 days, and he came down the mountain on Thursday. And so they were celebrating going into the presence of God and receiving the law of God by fasting and remembering. And the religious leaders believed that if you did not do this, 
then you do not actually love God. You are not a righteous individual. You are not spiritual, and you're not actually seeking after God. And so it became a tradition. It became a law. It became what is known as legalism in our day. They had their to-do list of things that they could prove their righteousness to God. But it gets even more obscure when it comes to the Jewish way of fasting. When it came to the Day of Atonement, there was a set way you had to do it. 24 hours of a fast. But the Jewish people actually built up a value menu for fasting. Ethan, you want to throw that up there? And so there were three types of fast. There was a typical fast, a partial fast, and an absolute fast. So on Monday and Thursday, you woke up and say, do I want number one, number two, or number three? And so a typical fast is when you fast from food and juices and things like that. The only thing you have on that typical fast is water. When you come to a partial fast, you're fasting from a particular thing. It may be an activity, it may be a type of food, it may be a, a hobby that you uh, should break away from for a while. The absolute fast is you're going to fast from water and food and everything. So that's what you're going to do. And so when you come up on, if you were, we were Jewish, we will wake up Monday and Thursday and it's like, hmm, do I want number one, number two, or number three? It's your choice. But you got to pick something. And then they did even more ridiculous. The Jewish people then say, okay, when you pick whatever fast you're going to do on Monday or Thursday, now you have to have an option, kind of like you want fries with that. Do you want to do this for 24 hours, or do you want to do this when the sun's out? So I'd like a number one only when the sun's out. And that's what the Jewish people do. And if they did that, they were righteous. They were, they were spiritual. They were connected with God and pursuing after God. And it became such a tradition that they passed on it. It became a law, an unwritten law that the Jewish people had to follow. And the belief was those who fasted regularly were more spiritual. They were more righteous. They were more connected with God, which obviously wasn't the case because the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees had a hard heart towards the things of God. And that's seen over and over again when it comes to Jesus Christ. When it comes to fasting, scripturally, fasting is abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. It's not a hunger strike. It's not going on a diet. And it's always intended to be done privately between the individual and God. It's not for show. It's not to put out there, hey, I'm fasting. I'm doing a, an absolute fast from sunrise to sundown, in case you want to know. That's not the point. The point is to rely on God and to rid yourself of things that may be distracting you from God. And so they come to Jesus. And it must have been a Monday or Thursday. Then why are you fasting? Why do we got to fast and you don't have to fast? And Jesus does teach on fasting for a little bit here. But he does it more so through the analogy of a wedding. He tells those who are questioning him about fasting and questioning about his disciples' lack of fasting. But the reason he and his disciples are not fasting in this moment is because his disciples are with the bridegroom. Now that could go right over our heads. But in Jewish tradition... When it would come to a wedding, if you were the guest of the bridegroom, you were a friend of the bridegroom, in particular if you were in the wedding party, you had one responsibility at the wedding when you were with the bridegroom. Celebrate. You were to celebrate, and other people would see you celebrate, and then they would celebrate with you. And so Jesus, in verse 34, is saying, My disciples are not fasting right now because they're at the wedding with me, the bridegroom, so they are celebrating in this moment. But then in verse 35, Jesus says, there will be a time when they will fast. 
because I am going to be taken away from them, or the bridegroom is going to be taken away. That phrase, taken away, in verse 35 means by brute force. He's going to be taken. And Jesus is no doubt pointing to the Garden of Gethsemane when he was taken by guard, arrested, and then ultimately crucified. And he says, in that moment, the disciples are going to fast because the celebration has come to an end and a time of mourning will begin. From sundown on Friday night, what we call Good Friday, to sunrise on Sunday morning, which we call Easter, Jesus said that's when they're going to fast. And today many Christians hold to that on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that they're going to fast during that Saturday. And you can pick one of these. These are still reliable sources of fasting. And that's all good if that's something you do. But we cannot say that I fast on Saturday before Easter and after Good Friday. So that means I'm more attuned to what is going to happen on Easter Sunday. I'm more attuned to God in the meaning of the resurrection. That has nothing to do with it. It's to set your heart on the things of God, and it's not about your self-righteous checklist that, well, look what I'm doing, and you should probably do this if you actually love Jesus. But that's what they're doing here with fasting. And what's interesting about this little analogy Jesus uses with the wedding and the bridegroom is he did this before when we got to the paralytic. Remember when the paralytic came down from the ceiling, Jesus said, your, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and scribes got all up in uproar. Whoa, only God can forgive sins. How in the world? He can't say that. It's blasphemy. But they didn't say it out loud. It was only in their hearts. And in that moment, Jesus knew their hearts and said, which is easier, for me to forgive or for me to heal? He didn't need them to say the words. And so even though they didn't recognize his quality with God, the fact that he could read their hearts, which only God can do, God reads the hearts of men. He revealed that he, in fact, had the authority to forgive sins. He does it again here, but it goes right over his audience's head. When he calls himself the bridegroom, this is not a messianic title. This is not a, a, a phrase used to point to the Christ. Instead, the bridegroom reveals his equality with God. It is a title only associated with God from the Old Testament when God called himself the husband of Israel or the husband of the Jewish people. And Jesus says here, he's telling him, look, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the husband. I'm God right here. And this shows us something about traditions because they're all stuck in this whole fasting thing. Is when we fall into traditions, traditions can blind us to truth. When I say tradition, I'm talking about man-made rules. I'm talking about spiritual righteous checklists, what we would call legalism today. You know, the do's and don'ts of Christianity. If you were actually a Christian, you would do this and you wouldn't do that. You would stay away from that because that shows your level of spirituality and your level of commitment to God. You know, churches have done this throughout history. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't play cards, don't dance, don't gamble. You know, Southwest Baptist University, which I'm an alumni of. My parents are alumni. As a matter of fact, our whole family has almost gone there. I mean, they, they just marry us all over there. It's, it's Southwest Bridal University to us. But anyway, um, <clears throat> Southwest Baptist University used to have a rule for women when it was Southwest Baptist College that if you're going to be out in public, you have to wear a, a dress that would go at least to your shins. And you couldn't go to class, you couldn't go to eat, you couldn't go outside unless you were dressed properly, and that was against the rules. 
Well, I'm happy to say there's evidence of it. I've seen the picture of my mom, the rebel, going against this law, this tradition. That she's out in the cafe or the cafeteria wearing pajamas and having her hair in curls because it's ridiculous. I mean, we can dress a certain way, but I'm glad we don't have a dress code here at Harvest Hill. I'm glad you can feel like you can come up in your, your hoodies and your shorts and your holy jeans. Right, Nick? Yeah. But I've been in churches before. I've been on staff in churches before where if you wore a hat in church, that was a huge sign of disrespect. And as I thought back on that, I thought, how funny that the head deacon of that church, his wife, always wore one of those big sun hats. You know, we don't see them so much here, but in the South, they're quite popular. And she would always, almost always, every single Sunday, have a big hat on. And I can't imagine some of the people that were so furious about that. You don't wear a hat in church. That's disrespectful. You need to take that hat off when you pray. You need to take that hat off when you sing. There was a time in church, and perhaps still is, where it was believed the only instruments, the only instruments you had in church was a what? Two things. Anybody know what they are? What? Organs, one, and a piano. Those are the only godly ordained instruments allowed in a church. We don't bring drums. We don't bring guitars because that represents rock and roll. And rock and roll is of the what? It's of the devil. Here's the funny thing about that. It's so ironic and so stupid because this is what traditions do. Traditions blind us to truth. Church history. If you want to get in church history, I'll, I'll lay it out for you. Church history introduced the organ and the piano into the church. You want to know why? Because those were the two instruments used in the bars. And they wanted to attract people from the bars, so when they came to church, there was an instrument they were familiar with, and they would get comfortable. We can go even further than that. Most of our favorite hymns, hymns, they're like in books, they're, they're old, but hymns, Amazing Grace, those sort of things, the tunes of those hymns are actually written to old bar tunes. And they just changed the words because they wanted those people who came from the bars to know the tunes so they could sing along with the words because they were so familiar with it with their Friday night life. If we want to look biblically, the most biblical instrument that we have on this stage is probably the drums. And stringed instruments. Darren's not in here to give me an amen. Where is... Thank you, Jason. But we can become so stuck... There he is. On traditions. We become blind to truth. We think this is the way it should be, and this is the way it always should be, and this is law. I was in college. I got called to go preach at a church, pulpit supply. Friday, before I was supposed to preach on that Sunday... Their head deacon called me. I don't know how, I guess he got a number from one of my instructors and said, uh, if you don't show up with a King James Bible, you just better not come. Okay, so I had to go to Walmart, buy a King James Bible. Luckily, they carried them. And I preached, read from the King James, but I did all my study from New International Version. They didn't seem to mind. But we can get so stuck. This is the way it's got to be. I'm not saying we shouldn't have barriers. I'm not saying we shouldn't have things that we put up to protect our hearts. But we do have to tread lightly and carefully 
that we don't set these things up as a proof of our righteousness. That we can puff out our chest and like, look what I do compared to what you don't do. That's what they're coming at with Jesus. I find it funny when thinking about this idea. When I was at SBU, some of my classmates, I was in the, uh, the ministry college called Redford College, and some of my classmates decided that, you know, we're not going to watch any R movies. We're, we're going to make a pact. We're not going to watch R movies because they corrupt our hearts and our minds. There's things in there we shouldn't see. And what I find so funny about that is about the time they make that pact, the passion of the Christ comes out. Well, it's about Jesus, but it's R, but it's about Jesus. You can't read the Old Testament. If the Old Testament was made into a movie, it would be R. Read Joshua, read Judges, read David's life, for crying out loud. Just saying we can't put ourselves in these little bubbles and say, this is my righteousness. And what Jesus does is He takes this tradition and He begins to open up the dangers of doing that. See, they believed there was something that was required in order for God to accept There's something required of me. Something I need to bring to the table. And churches do this all the time. You know, we only are going to do Lifeway stuff. The only VBS we're going to do is going to be from Lifeway. You don't know what Lifeway is, don't worry about it. Harvest Hill, we're not that. You know what we're going to do? We're going to do Bible stuff. And we're going to do only things from the Bible. And, and if it's not from the Bible, we're not going to do it. And some of y'all may not even caught this, but there are songs we sing that we've actually changed the lyrics to make sure it reinforces the Bible. That it's not some man-made tradition or man-made philosophy or man-made invention. That it actually comes from the pages of Scripture. Because as God's people, we are to be truth-based, not tradition-based. So Jesus points out the dangers in two scenarios that He's known as parables. By the way, this is the first parable that Jesus gives in His ministry right here. Look in verse 36. And so He told him a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now when Jesus tells parables, he typically does it in such a way that it's everyday situations or circumstances that people can relate to, but it has a much deeper spiritual meaning. And so as he brings up these garments, everyone who's listening, everyone who's questioning him, are like, okay, I can relate to that. I've had a pair of pants or a robe that got caught and got a tear, and so I had to fix it so I could continue to wear it. But what Jesus does is he points out the stupidity it would be to take something from a new piece of, of clothing that has no problems, no issues, to fix an old piece of clothing which obviously has issues. And so what is the new piece of clothing representing? It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's what we call the New Testament. What's the old piece representing? It's the old way of doing things, particularly to Jewish man-made traditions and our old past sinful nature. Some say that the old clothing is the old covenant, or what we call the Old Testament. It could be, because we know that Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant, the law and the prophecies, and usher in the new covenant. 
But nowhere does Jesus say that you throw out the old. Jesus came in to usher in the new covenant based on a faith in who He was, not on what an individual could do. But the analogy is what some try to do with the gospel today. They take a little bit of the new, take a little bit of that gospel, and we're going to apply it to the old, or apply it to something it doesn't even go with. In other words, they take parts of the gospel they like, and they apply it to Old Testament principles, or they tie it to an old way of living, which is a life of sin. Paul deals with this when he writes to the Corinthian believers and to the believers in Galatia. Because they were taking what they liked from the gospel. Praise the Lord, Jesus died for our sins. Praise the Lord, He rose from the grave. Praise the Lord, He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But, even though that's all good news, let's add a little circumcision in there. Let's add a little sabbatical regulations and Jewish festivals. Let's, let's add some abstaining from certain things because... Obviously, what Jesus did wasn't enough. And that's what we do when we take a little bit of the gospel and apply it to an old way of living. We say, well, we know what Jesus did, but it surely wasn't enough to cover all this. It surely didn't pay the whole price. And Jesus is using this analogy, this parable, to say we're all in danger of doing this when we understand the gospel. We take bits of the gospel, and it's typically the parts that, that benefit us the most. And we'll take bits of the gospel, and then we'll apply principles to it, and then we'll proclaim that those principles are just as authoritative as the gospel itself. But the Bible says, God's Word says, that if you add anything to the gospel or take anything away from the gospel, you should be accursed. In Galatians chapter 1, the word accursed means to be devoted to destruction, condemned, having a curse upon you, or as some translations say, you should be condemned to hell. Because anything gospel plus isn't the gospel. We cannot update Jesus Christ. <laughs> he needs no update. He's perfect. He's righteous. And if you want to add anything to the gospel or manipulate the gospel, then you're not believing in the gospel. You're believing in your own man-made thing. And we can do this by taking little bits of the new and we apply it to our sinful way of living. And I've seen this in almost every church I've been in. And I know many Christians struggle with this. We get called out in our sin. Well, I'm free in Christ. Well, I'm saved by grace. You know, once saved, always saved. And the Bible does teach those truths, but it's never in the context of using it as a patch to cover over the sin. We are free in Christ so we can become slaves of God and no longer submit to the yoke of slavery, which is sin. Our sins are forgiven so we don't live in our sins, but we live for Christ. We are saved by grace, and once saved, always saved. But that is so we can bear the fruit of our salvation and not of our past sinful nature. Grace and salvation are not a New Testament card that we can throw out and patch over our sin. That's not their intention. It's not like Monopoly did out of jail free card. That's not what grace and salvation is intended for. Grace and salvation makes us new so we would tear away from the old and stop trying to fix it. It's past. It's done with. 
It's buried with Christ. And we have now risen in a new life and as a new creation. And Jesus goes on. He makes another point. Verse 37. He says, And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. And if he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. I wonder what people did when they had that rule, don't drink. And they kept reading through the Gospels and Jesus kept talking about wine or being around wine. Or how, how they dealt with that spiritually. But he makes this analogy about wine. Again, the, the, the wine is just as the new patch, the Gospel. And so the old wine, the old wineskins, referring to traditions or the old way of doing things. The traditions, the sinful nature. And his audience would have been very familiar with this imagery that Jesus is teaching them. They would understand wineskins. When a new wineskin was made, new wine would go into it because a new wineskin would be allowed to expand. Whereas an old wineskin could no longer expand. And so it would burst when new wine would go into it. Even new wineskins were prone to burst when new wine went into because of, of the pressure that it was under. And so it would have to be repurposed or thrown out. It could no longer be used for what it was original purpose for. And so we take this parable that Jesus do, does with wineskins and new wine, and there's so many levels. It could be a subtle way that Jesus is pointing to the new way of living righteous before God. No longer under the old sacrificial system or in the birthright of a Jewish person, but by faith alone in the message of the gospel. But the overall point that Jesus is making with this parable of wineskins is you taking all of the new, but you're trying to force it into the old. You're trying to cram it into a place it does not belong. And this parable is a little more vivid. Jesus says when we try to take the new of the gospel, and we take all of it, and we try to cram it into our old way of living, both will end up destroyed. You will destroy them all because they're incompatible with one another. It's the image of a life living in sin is not compatible with having a faith in the gospel that released us from sin. It doesn't work. It will destroy our souls. It will put us in a spiritual battle. This erupted completely with Martin Luther. Martin Luther lived in a time when the Roman Catholic Church was at its peak. And what the Roman Catholic Church did is they took the gospel... And they took all of it and they tried to cram it into their old way of living. And when Martin Luther got into the gospel and began reading the gospel, he understood this does not work. This is not compatible. It is either in faith alone, in Christ alone that I'm saved, or I have to do all these other things. And it destroyed who he was. But it led to the Reformation. Because he saw the Roman Catholic Church was putting new wine into old wineskins. This method, an individual doesn't just take a piece of the gospel. They take all of it. And then they cram it in to their old way of living. And the result is constant turmoil and a soul on its way to destruction. We don't take the gospel and adapt it to us. Rather, we receive the gospel and adapt to it. This is the definition of being a Christian, a believer, a disciple. The Bible says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I think an analogy in our day would be thinking of an old tube TV. 
Remember those old tube TVs? We have, to, we have to explain old tube TVs to some of our students here. So it's basically like, like a box that had a screen. And most, like the one I had growing up, you had to get up off your rumpus, walk over and turn the channel or mess with the antenna to get the right channel, right? You all remember those foil and all that wonderful stuff? Torture, I know. But the analogy today would be to take an old tube TV and expect it to stream Netflix or play high-definition movies and just get frustrated that it's not working. Get frustrated that I can't stream my stuff. I mean, Richard is still, you still got your flip phone? Yeah, so when we talk about apps, he's like, it's not there. Um, but you take this old tube TV, you get mad it's not going to stream Netflix or whatever media platform you like. You get mad that it's not playing your, your Blu-ray movies, or at least it doesn't look Blu-ray. But the problem isn't the TV, because the TV was never meant to do it. And our living in sin or continuing sin, while living in the gospel, won't work because they're incompatible with one another. They don't gel. The gospel was never intended to permit us to continue to live the way we were before we met Jesus. It was meant to change us. In the book of Colossians, it stressed that the believer must continue to mature in the faith to become more like Christ and therefore put off their former and sinful self. Why would people do this? Why would we trust in traditions over truth? Why would we only take portions of the gospel and squeeze it into our former lifestyle? Why would we accept all of the gospel and yet try to make it fit into the way we want to live? It's easier. It's easier. It's easier for me to have a list of what I should and shouldn't do to prove my righteousness rather than have complete faith that Christ has clothed me in His perfect righteousness. It's easier for me to have bits and pieces of the gospel in my life and I can spout it out so I can prove that what I'm doing is not actually wrong. It's easier for me to accept all of the gospel, yet to use it as a blanket of my, to cover my sin. Because it's easier for us to pick up our sinful nature than it is to pick up our cross. It's easier. But God calls us to something bigger. Something greater. Something that will give us abundant life. Something that will actually bring us joy. Instead of wrestling with our old selves. And Jesus here in verse 39 points out the danger if we do this. He says, and no one after drinking the old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good, or the old is better. The New Living Translation, I believe, actually makes us more clear of what Jesus is saying. It reads that no one drinks the old wine, seems to want the new. The old is just fine, they say. The statement is, a statement of destruction is waiting on anyone who takes bits of the gospel or all of the gospel or holds to tradition over truth and uses that as permission to do whatever they want. The end result is that they will get stuck. Eventually, they'll get tired of the fight. Eventually, they'll say, well, you know, the old way isn't really that bad. Well, it's not really that 
big of a deal, is it? Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Ever heard those statements? Ever justified the behavior you have with those statements in your head? Well, not going to kill the kitten. <laughs> but that's the thing. When we hold anything that isn't gospel, we allow our hearts to become corrupted and become hard to the point where we're like, well, you know what? It's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. That's what that statement is saying there in verse 39. The old way is not really that bad. But the old way doesn't bring salvation. The old way doesn't live in the promises of God. The old way destroys our hearts and our soul. It steals, kills, and destroys. That's the old way. But Jesus brings a new way. In verses 36 through 39, the word new is used seven times. Eight times if we take the word fresh in verse 38 and read it as new, which is what the word implies. Jesus came to bring us into a new way of living. He ushered in a new covenant that is by grace alone, by faith alone, and in Christ alone. And he invites everyone to be a part of it. And the beauty of it is not what we bring to the table. It's not what we bring before Him. It's our faith that He paid it all in full. And so I trust in Him. And I'm going to keep my eyes focused on Him. And I'm going to let Him change me so that I am different from this world. And I look like Him. You know, that's what it means when we call ourselves Christian. The word literally means little Christ. Is brought up in the book of Acts for the very first time, meaning to make fun of those people who were following Jesus because the, the people saw the way these people were living. And they said, they look just like Jesus. They're acting just like Jesus. They're talking just like Jesus. They're little Christ. Christian. That's what the word means. That's what God is wanting to make us into. A representation of Christ in this world. And we can't do it if we're holding on to the old. I'm not saying we're not going to stumble. I'm not saying we're not going to fall short. Lord knows I do all the time. But I keep clinging to Christ because He is my only hope. Where are you today? Are you living by traditions over truth? Or are you living in truth? Are you only taking parts of the gospel and applying only the parts that you like to your life and say, well, I'm doing that? Or are you trying to take all of the gospel and fit it into the way of life that you want to live rather than the way of life that God is calling you to live? And so today's the day to repent. But maybe you're here. The realization is you aren't in the family of God yet. You aren't in the new. You're still living in the old sinful way. And God has brought you here this day to adopt you into His family. And there's nothing you could have done or ever will do that will change God's mind from loving you. And so he extends his invitation of grace, what we've been calling the gospel of the good news, that God created you for a relationship with him. With him. And your sins are separating you from that relationship. And you can't do enough good stuff. You can't make a righteous to-do list to, to deal with that sin. 
And God knows that about us. And that's why He sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And He did. And He rose again. And the Bible says, when I place my faith and hope and trust in Him and what He did, and I ask God for forgiveness because Christ gives it, I've been only given forgiveness, I'll be given eternal life with God. And His Holy Spirit will dwell inside of me. And nothing will be able to separate me from Him. You may be here this morning and you need to accept that truth. Accept God's invitation. Stop clinging to the old and step forward and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I need to be saved. I want to be a part of God's family. If you're here and that's you, I'm going to invite you to come down here in a moment. But maybe you're here and like what God revealed to me this week, there were things in my life that I was trying to just use the gospel like to cover over. And God's been trying to deal with it and He completely opened my eyes to see it. So changes have to happen. Transformation has to take place. We have to let go of control and just trust. We're going to have Nick and... Are you coming too? Bridget are going to come up and lead us in a song. How deep the Father's love for us. What a great song to sing in this moment. Some of us may be feeling convicted. The only reason we're convicted is because God loves us as His children. God disciplines us as His children because He loves us. How deep the Father's love for us. Maybe you're here and you need to accept God's love for you. I'm going to invite you to come down. We call this a time of invitation. I'm inviting you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to be a child of God. Come on down. We're going to pray together. They're going to lead us in a song. You okay, by the way? Yeah. All right, good. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you is by grace. It is by faith. It is by you alone. Lord, forgive us when we try to manipulate it. Make it into something it not intended to be or make it do something it never intended to do. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your discipline, for your rebuking, for your instruction and your training through your word. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning that is not sure if they're saved or knows for certain they are not, Lord, I pray that your spirit would give them the courage to come down the aisle and have that immediately changed. Let this be the day of their salvation. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We praise on the name of Jesus. Amen.